I've got an inkling I know what I don't know. The unlearning was a little bit slow, but now I can hear it's abundantly clear where the future management of water needs to go. This is Making Waves, the podcast bringing you water stories from around Australia. We are amplifying the lesser heard voices of Aboriginal people and communities. I am your host, Marnie Island. Together, we will explore the fundamental role water plays in the places we live, grow, work and love. this episode of Making Waves, we navigate the uncharted waters of what we are increasingly referring to as cultural flows. I speak with water warrior Cheryl Buchanan about the genesis of cultural flows methodologies. Troy and I discuss the ongoing challenges for recognition of Aboriginal water rights with Brad Mogridge. Nance gets up to Cairns to speak with Dale Mundraby about how lands and waters are managed on Mandagalbay Yudinji country which is straddling two World Heritage areas, encompassing the wet tropics and Great Barrier Reef. We bring you another musical treat from Mark Cole-Smith, and we hear from more of our future water managers. Today, we're coming to you from the banks of the mighty Maywa River. So accordingly, we acknowledge the Jagara people as the traditional custodians of Minjin, Brisbane, the lands on which we are meeting for a podcast conversation. We pay our respects to the Jagara elders past, present and emergency. Today, I am delighted to be catching up with Cheryl Buchanan, who's a Guamu Nation elder and lifetime campaigner for social and environmental justice. She has a long history of campaigning for Aboriginal rights and her work has touched many lives. I could take up the entire podcast going through everything that uh, Cheryl has achieved, but I'm just going to touch on a few. So Cheryl is a Women's Environmental Leadership Australia alumna. She's a water warrior, a dancer and a powerhouse for change. Cheryl's clan country is on Nebine Creek, where the Darling River starts. I count myself extremely fortunate to have met, first met Cheryl when she was a director of the Northern Murray-Darling Basin Aboriginal Nations, NBAN a unique organisation that represents, under one common cause, 22 sovereign First Nations in the Northern Murray-Darling Basin in natural resource and water management. Cheryl was instrumental in setting up that group. The NBAN motto is keeping our water spirits and our connections alive. Within the Murray-Darling Basin, there are 46 sovereign First Nations represented by both NBAN and the Murray-Lower-Darling Rivers Indigenous Nations, or Mildren. The core business of NBAN is cultural and natural resource management. Its primary focus is to ensure that Aboriginal people and communities are more widely consulted and generally involved in the engagement processes of water management issues. 
When I met Cheryl, I was working for the National Cultural Flows Research Project, and Cheryl was a founding member of the 100% Aboriginal Research Committee governing the project. Cheryl has also been the Deputy Director of the First Peoples Water Engagement Council and a member of the Murray-Darling Basin Community Committee. And she is presently a member of the National Aboriginal Water Interest Committee and a Director of the Queensland Murray-Darling Catchments Limited, a ranger program. So as you can see, we're about to um, delve into or just scratch the surface of a wealth of knowledge. So let's get on with hearing from Cheryl. Cheryl, can you tell us about your water journey? Well, I think like everybody else, my water journey began in the womb. And I think it's an important starting place because women and the waterways are so intertwined and water played an important role and the dreaming stories and everything else but also is the healing aspect of that with childbirth as well so that's really where everyone's journey begins whether you're male or female or whatever you end up being and from there i think that as a child we all played in at rivers and creeks and put mud on sticks and pinged them at each other and used to go down fishing. Interestingly enough, our only concern for our parents at those, in those days was that we were home before dark. So a very different lifestyle, but one I would say that was almost 100% spent around the river or the creeks, where we ended up being. I ended up near Gympie at one part of my life and again, we lived right near Widgee Creek, and it, my life then was always around the creeks. When we got our properties in 99, we took it over in 2000, out on the Kneebine, the journey just continued on. And I think that every Aboriginal person or First Nation person that you speak to, whether they're freshwater or saltwater, just have that intrinsic relationship with water. More recently, Ring Berlin is an amazing piece of work that you were heavily involved in. It seemed to knit together so many of your particular skills. It's part cinematic art, it's part practical water resource management advice and it's part education really. Can you tell us a bit more about that project and perhaps what you think the biggest challenges are for the planning and management of water resources? Oh, look Ring Berlin uh, started with a conversation I think that my son, one of my sons, Cargoon, and I were having a discussion about just where things had got with the waterways. And when I was on the Murray-Darling Basin Community Committee, all I ever heard about at meetings was about the Living Murray and the Living Murray program and the Living Murray projects and these millions of dollars and how everything was so organised down in the southern part. But little was ever talked about in terms of the northern part of the basin and what about the dying darling, mm. which is really where we got to. And at the bottom end of our traditional country is Cubby Station. Well, everybody knows about the turkey nests. Apparently you can see them from you know, satellites. It's one of the, the, one of the few man-made things that mm. you can see when you're right up there in the sky. So we got to a situation where you only, there's only dirt left, there's no ground feed left, there's, there's nothing happening, the animals are looking so sad, kangaroos were just dying in numbers because of the drought. Mm. 
and I would say that all through the the whole Murray-Darling Basin that that's what was happening. You see those iconic photos now that people have those memories of the wetlands mm. with these dead trees that are standing up and mm. dead fish and it motivates you. You think well what the hell can I do? What is it that we can do? And the basis of everything really is culture and it's easy to talk about culture but to put it into action and we happened to be down, both Cargoon and I, at a conference for Engineers Without Borders and uh, Mugi Sumner was there, who's from Nuttandaddy Man. And so we began having this conversation about doing ceremony all the way down. When we had the conversation, Mugi was saying, well, we're going to start at the down in the Murray, down Nuttandaddy country, and we'll go back all the way up to you. And I said, no, that's not how we do it, because we go the way the rivers flow. Mm. So in the end, they've got some money together, and we did start at Murramurra Station, which is one of the properties that our traditional owner group have that was purchased through the Indigenous Land Corporation in uh, 1999. And yeah, we just began a small group of people and we had it in our minds that what we were going to do was talk to our spirits and get them to help us to make rain. And along the way, we were going to make sure that the towns that we called into on the rivers that we would meet the community people, invite them down if they wanted to participate in the dancing and just went from there. And when we started out, it was it was kind of, it was some kind of magic, I, mm. I don't know. It, it's very hard to describe how it was feeling. It was feeling so different from anything we'd ever ever done. And the further down we got, it was that sense of, I don't know, this strength, this amazing strength that had started coming through, both within the, the way that we were feeling, within our dancing, our, uh, the, the songs, the, everything that was happening. And even the young people started to really and truly understand that they were becoming, they were rainmakers. You know, the, these little trickles of, mm. of water came down in Rewarana, for example. And then we went down and near the Wentworth, you know where all the rivers connect there. And so by the time we got further down to towards the Murray Bridge, I remember it was just so freezing cold. We were so cold, and we had a lot of young people as well. We couldn't feel our feet. Like we were dancing, but they were frozen. Our feet were actually frozen. And all these poor little ones, I remember them all shivering and, and carrying on, you know. But each, like I said, each time you could see the clouds. The clouds began and then the, it's like the clouds gained that momentum as we were going down and they got bigger and bigger and the black black clouds started coming and the, the rain started coming. And by the time we got to the um, mouth of the Murray, we really honestly believed that we had performed a ceremony that hadn't been performed for a very long time. Now we didn't need any anthropologist or historian or anyone else to tell us that, 
just as as black fellows, you know, that's how we felt at mm -hmm. that time. Not just the older ones, like I said, the younger ones as well. And then, as you know, what did happen was the rain came. <laughs> it was amazing. The rain came and the rain didn't stop. And I remember saying to, to Moogie at the beginning of it, I said, we will get that river flowing because unless you saw dredges keeping that Murray mouth open, you wouldn't really understand the importance of getting that flow through. And I, I saw that. I saw that. I saw these huge carp that they looked like whales. I'd never, <laughs> I'd only ever seen these little things like, a, you know, a mm. foot, you know, 18 inches or whatever in the knee bone, right? Mm. That was what I mm. thought a carp looked like. Mm. But then when I saw these carp. Monsters, yeah. They were monsters. Mm. And I was on the um, Murray-Darling Basin Community Committee and we'd, we'd had a visit down there. And <laughs> I thought of thought they were whales or something. A black fellow doesn't know anything. And uh, they said, no, they're carp. And I what? They can't be. I could not believe the size of these things. And so I had that memory and that intent in my mind, I think, that I'd made this promise. It wasn't about making a promise to a human being, but it was really a promise spiritually to that river that I'd made within myself and that all of us made, that we were going to get those waters to flow through. And they did. They did. And I don't care what anyone says. We broke that drought. Mm. We broke the drought. And this is just a sideline, but I had a, quite a few farmers after that ring me up. <laughs> can you go? Oh, can you, can you come and, um, can you just come and do some rain dance out here? <laughs> no, but sorry. sorry. Not for sale. Until you actually get what we talk about, you know. Yeah, no, you're going to have to wait. <laughs> What was so amazing, and for anyone that hasn't seen it, do yourself a favour and look it up. You've really got to watch this to believe it. It is powerful stuff. What's really interesting about that is the feeling of taking action, seeing a problem and doing something tangible about that. And that seems to me something that you are particularly good at, Cheryl. So I was wondering, we got to know each other through the National Cultural Flows Research Project. Could you share with people what that framework and that methodology is about, that, that real practical nature to it. People throw the word sovereignty around, but these are inherent rights that we have. Our, our right to water and the life that that offers and the lifeblood that that offers to us as human beings is critical to our survival as First Nation people. And more generally, it's important for everybody's survival. Mm. When you look at that, when you look at the fact that here we are in Australia, in one of the driest continents in the planet, I just shake my head. I, I, I'm continually amazed at the lack of understanding of what is really required, what is really required in this country to get water into places where it's needed. Why are we still in 2022 seeing communities that have no water, that have to have water trucked in, that have people bringing bottles of water in. I mean, it's just some kind of madness, isn't it? It is. And yet, how often do these things have to happen? Where we go through these drought periods, you get rain, then you get drought, then you get rain. How often does that have to happen within your lifetime? 
it's kind of like a form of dementia. It's like Australians uh, have something going on within their psyche where they just become very forgetful about anything, anything that's really important. And yet uh, traditional owners just keep hammering and going, look, listen to us, listen to us. If you keep doing X, Y and Z, there will be no water left. There will be no, nothing left for anybody. We have to get back to the drawing board and go, look, First Nation people have got the traditional knowledge. They've got the traditional ecological knowledge. We didn't survive in this country for 75,000 years plus if we didn't have not only the special relationship but the knowledge base as well to allow us to be sustainable in our practices within the river, within the land mass that we have. But the actual science and the knowledge that First Nation people have is still sitting somewhere over there in that box that no one wants to open up because if they do what do they have to do? Recognise the inherent right mm. of, of us as this is this was our country in the first place. And a lot of people don't want to do that. Mm. So they will pretend and marginalise, marginalise the thinking and say, well look, you know, yeah, we're consulting with the traditional owners. Um, you know that, that wetland over there? Yeah, we've got a few of them involved in that project and now we've got a few things coming up and we've consulted with the, the traditional owners of, of that group. No, that's not decision making. That is not the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. That's not free, prior and informed consent by any means mm. at all. What it is, is to me still being gatekeepers, mm -hmm. still assuming that the power and control belongs to the non-Indigenous people in this country and this assumption that whatever we have to contribute is only very minuscule. Right, so like you, you go off there, you're five percent of the population or whatever you are. So we'll give you five percent of the say. Well, we don't even get five percent of the say. <laughs> Probably be great. We might see a few changes <laughs> if we get five percent of the say across the board. But until people understand what engagement actually really means, and until they really understand what it's, it's not really about management. I think us, us blackfellas don't like the words like management. It's that relationship. How do you establish that relationship with the waterways and the wetlands and the billabongs and everything else? How do you understand, get people to understand that relationship of what connectivity actually means and that, that the spiritual and the cultural and economic? You still have water resource plans, Marnie, in 2022 who find it really difficult to talk about economics mm. so they want us to have the cultural and they want us to have the spiritual and you can go and run off and do your little crobbery and you know, <coughs> sing a few songs and whatever but economic base mm. uh, in relation to water mm. or sorry no 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 mm. no can do and you go well how do I know that well because 0.1 percent of water is owned by Aboriginal people how many licenses mm the First Nation people have within mm. this country. Uh, very few, and if they are, they're just gamming things anyway. Mm. So we've talked about getting allocations for cultural flows. We've fought for things like water allocations. We've fought for a proper 
first nation estate in relation to water. But it's falling on deaf ears most mm. of the time. And we've still got a long, long way to go in this whole fight. There are still, in New South Wales, there are still water resource plans that haven't been signed off on, and yet 25, 26, the basin plan review is going to be happening. So it's always behind, and it's always, well, whose interests are we serving? Yeah. We're not serving the interests of the grassroots people. We're not serving the interests of those people who don't have much, working class people, farmers who are trying to make a living and just you know, grow food, whatever. And let's look at that. And that basic stuff, and then the 40 million that was promised for water buyback for, for Aboriginal people after that Northern Basin Review, still has not been used. Yeah. Still hasn't been used. Everyone's been accused of spending it, of course. Mm. Why aren't they establishing water trusts? Why aren't there proper allocations? Why aren't there water resource plans that reflect First Nation people's belief systems? Yeah. They're not cultural flows. They are not what we fought for in the national cultural flow space at all. A national cultural flow is about having a system where the mundagara, the, the spirit, the rainbow serpent, whatever you want to call it, everyone has a different name for it uh, within our First Nation groups, that our spirit can travel through the waterways where the waterways are not blocked, where the waterways are open, so the air, everything flows, the oxygen is there within the water. That's what it's about. It's, and it's not just about that spiritual aspect because we didn't survive just on spirit for <laughs> 75,000 years. Hey, we fished in the rivers, we swam in the rivers, we did a whole range of things. But it provided us with those economic exactly. things, yeah. outcomes as well, yeah. you know, as your social, political and environmental. And also have a look at Ringbolan because to me, Ringbolan, it was never intended to be a movie, right? It was just a couple of families who got together and had a belief in culture that we could make a difference. And we did. You so did and continue to. Thank you so much for sharing some of your thoughts with us, Cheryl. We always like to finish up with this one little question. What's your favourite water song and why? Look, my brother and my sister, of course she's passed away now, but Archie Roach, how can you ever go past Golden Voice, a man of integrity, just one of the most beautiful men that this planet created. And the song is Wash My Soul in the River Flow. Cheryl Buchanan, thank you so much. Cheryl Buchanan, a formidable woman of practical action. Do check out Ring Berlin and the resources developed by the National Cultural Flows Research Project. You can Google or links will be put in our podcast notes.
Now we've chosen the next treat. We've chosen Nalila, the first song from Mark Cole Smith's Kalaji album, to reflect upon cultural flows to. It's a stunningly beautiful and evocative track. See what you think. Along a river 
that leads you. You can download that piece of oral art from Mark Cole Smith's Kalaji album on the Bandcamp platform. It was the perfect sonic undercurrent to our next conversation, where Troy and I get into deep water with Brad Morridge. Brad is from Camilleroy Nation in northwest New South Wales and grew up in Western Sydney, now living in Canberra. He's been awarded the 2017 ATSI Community Alumni Award from ACU and a fellow and is a fellow of the Peter Cullen Trust for Science to Policy Leadership course in 2018. Brad is well on his way to achieving his ambition of leading in his area of expertise and also promoting Aboriginal traditional knowledge and finding commonalities between traditional science and Western science. So this can influence policy and the way we manage Australian landscape. He previously led the New South Wales DPI Water as the Team Leader Aboriginal Water Initiative, which was the only dedicated Aboriginal water unit in Australia at the time. He also worked with CSIRO Land and Water as the only Indigenous water research specialist. He was invited to attend the Wentworth Group of Concerned Scientists Masterclass in 2013. Brad was a member of the Department of Environment's Indigenous Water Advisory Committee, now disbanded, and a former member of the NWC First Peoples Water Engagement Council, a member of AATSIS and also the JSC for the review of National Water Quality Management Strategy. He is also a judge for the Australian River Prize and the River Management Young Achievers Award. So, it's a fairly comprehensive background. Let's hear what Brad has to say. Welcome, Brad Morgridge. It's an absolute pleasure to have you speaking with us. I'd like to acknowledge the country that I'm coming to listeners from today, which is Jara country. I'm the lands of the Jajawarang uh, people in central Victoria. And I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. But also note that this is an online interview. So we've got Troy, I believe you're still on Wurundjeri country and I'm not actually sure where you're coming to us from, Brad. None of all. None of all. So central Canberra, Canberra lands. So that's that's Never. awesome. I'd just like to extend that acknowledgement of the thought leadership that we're bringing into this space, and hopefully is reflected in our conversations today. And pay the respects to elders of all the countries we're we're on. Troy, did you want to sort of lead us off? It'd be a pleasure. Thanks, Marnie. My question. I'll just kick it off. It's a rather simple one for the listeners out there, Brad. What sort of been your water journey what were the motivating factors around getting involved in in that from a professional perspective um, from professional uh, activism I do my activism through the written pen these days I don't follow flatbed trucks with uh, loud microphones I'd like doing the activism that leads to tangible results through critical thinking and action a little bit about your water journey would be, would be great yeah, cool. Thanks, Troy. Yeah, acknowledge all the countries that we're sitting on today. And yeah, it's, yeah I've acknowledged that I've all been here for 11 years and thank them for allowing us to live here and we will tread lightly and carefully on their country. Um, yeah, look, my water journey probably started around 65,000 years ago on the driest inhabited continent on Earth. And I think it moved towards an early age that, you know, I used to play in the creeks behind mum and dad's um, in Toongabby in Western Sydney. And some days the creeks would be clear, crystal clear. Some days they'd be bright yellow. Some days they'd be turbid. And obviously we didn't go there when there was floods. So, but yeah, upstream was a, an industrial area. 
and you know sort of looking at the health of that creek you know he's catch tadpoles and and little guppies and things like that and watch the tadpoles grow but i think that engagement with water was was early on but i didn't realize that one day i'd be an associate professor in indigenous water science so my journey after school was was through geology and i enjoyed learning about the earth and seeing how it was formed and how it responds and how it acts and and things to look for in in in, in nature and I did some exploration work. It was in the Great, yeah, Great Sandy Desert. I'm the nearest town. We were doing exploration, and the target mineral was uranium, and also base metals. Copper was the main target. And that part of the world, you know, you've got a, a large lake called Lake Disappointment. That some, it's it's a it's actually part of a, a national park because it's one of the few rivers that flows inland. Mm to Lake Disappointment and Lake Disappointment is a disappointment because it's a large salt lake. <laughs> so uh, we only had a couple of water holes in the Rudal River and we visited those on, on sort of days off. But then you sort of see aspects in the landscape that you can interpret as being water dependent. So, you know, a, a stand of ghost gums mm. in the desert suggests they're tapping into to, to groundwater. Mm. And, you know, that sort of gets you thinking and, and the, those water holes and then how to find water, you know, going through full drive training while I was out there. This is in the early 90s. How to find and survive in this dry landscape. Then you're thinking about how Aboriginal people really, really excelled in this space, you know, and that, that connection to water was amazing. And I think then moved over to environmental science. So I went from looking at digging up minerals to, to filling in holes. And environmental science was a key part of that. And then moving into wetlands and rivers has been a key part of my journey. And then being in local government, there wasn't much opportunity to do that. So I did a master's in hydrogeology because I was told at one point while I was doing geology that groundwater would be the next challenge for Australia. And I suppose when I started looking at groundwater and the connection Aboriginal people had to groundwater, that really picked my ears up and got my attention. And, yeah, and I did a thesis on Aboriginal people and groundwater and, you know, looking at their connection um, and why it's so important. And, you know, being the driest inhabited continent on Earth, if you don't know where water is, you're not going to last long. And I think that that was the, the really cool thing that I suppose I discovered was Aboriginal people's understanding in a dry landscape and now a drying landscape mm. that we're in, other than La Nina at the moment, but normally, you know, it's a drying landscape and water is going to be a big issue. And, you know, you've got towns like, or cities, I should say, like uh, Perth, you know, that has a high reliance on groundwater itself. And then other other areas, you know, that where knowledge of groundwater has existed, but we don't tap into it. And I suppose mm. that's been my... Well, let's say the last, you know, 10 years has been trying to promote that knowledge and the value of water. I think I can relate to some similar um, things. I live in the uh, Latrobe Valley in Victoria and it's a massive brown coal or was a massive brown coal power generation community. And I, I, I certainly understand around childhood uh, and riverways and 
find it interesting about the, the, the analogy around like disappointment. It probably wasn't a disappointment for Aboriginal people for 65,000 years, but it certainly would have been a disappointment for those entrepreneurs in the colonial days yeah. that wanted to open yeah. up the outback and were expecting the water their horses and their oxen and themselves. So Interesting, you know, isn't uh, it, to reflect on that there's the same issues occurring around around the nation. So, you know, Troy's reflected on a Latrobe experience that mirrors some of your outback Western Australian experiences, Brad. And I think the three of us can reflect on experiences we've had around what could be considered personal setbacks, but I think I'm really interested in looking at what the implications are more broadly because we know that we live in a country where drought is inevitable. So we, we should be planning and have long-term resource planning around the inevitability of drought. So I'm just wondering, Brad, if you could reflect from your experiences on what you think the biggest challenges are for the planning and management of water resources. Over-allocation is probably the biggest challenge and that's led to that space is because water law has, has allowed it. So if you had land and water, if you had land, you got water back in the day. So I'm talk- I'll give like a New South Wales experience. You know, if you had land, you got water. If you wanted more water, you got it. And it was all licensed. You pretty much got it for nothing. And then obviously they brought in the Water Management Act in New South Wales. And then obviously the, the National Water Initiative come about. And then, you know, the, the opportunity to separate land and water um, was the big sort of structural and, and policy shift for reform in, in water. I suppose the National Water Initiative itself in 2004 was the first real national policy agreement to acknowledge Aboriginal people. There's a number of clauses in, in the National Water Initiative. They're quite vague and, and not really committal, but I think that was the start. And then you had Water Acts coming after, then the Federal Water Act and the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, but really the damage had been done. So water law for Aboriginal people is seen as that it benefits the settler. We get no benefits prior to the separation or decoupling of land and water. We were right. Some of the mobs out there do, do have through, say, land rights acts and things like that, they do have land back through land rights and they have water attached to it. So if they didn't have water back then, then it's harder to get to the market today. So for Aboriginal people, we need to go to the market and buy water if we want water. That's that's our rea- reality. And, yeah, you just got to look at this floodplain harvesting issue in New South Wales is that they're developing, you know, legislation, and I think it got knocked back a number of times, but it got passed last time, last effort of the minister on the way out the door, and only one of the proposed 500 floodplain harvesting licences will go to an Aboriginal entity, one. Hmm. You know, the, that, that is a licence to, to harvest floodplain water for free. We're, we're, again, behind the eight ball. We're way behind. So the market drives is driven by availability. So when in dry times, you know, liquid, it was liquid gold. Mm. It's, it's premium. Some water plant, uh, water valleys that had through the, the mega drought that followed the millennium drought, say in the Namoy in northwest New South Wales, you know, you... It's normally around $80 a megalitre, but it was up around $1,000 a megalitre. So if you had water available for the market, you know, you could make some serious money and obviously having water is serious power and we don't have any power per se. I have a bit of a, a question. I'm not sure if you'll be able to answer it. With the over-allocation conversation, there really doesn't seem to be 
the collaboration and really good communication across states around this seems to me to be dominated by uh, water policy experts. And I was wondering what your views are, what, why statewide health departments don't recognise this as a major health crisis rather than a water crisis um, and start inserting that into uh, a broader broader conversation. Do you have any thoughts around my views on that one, Brad? Yeah, look, I think wellbeing is closely linked to healthy water. If you've got clean, healthy water at the centre of your being, you know, you've got healthy people, healthy country. It's, mm. You know, it's, it's not, it's, it's pretty simple. It is. Um, and I suppose, you know, you, you look at places like in the NT where they have mostly bore water, they're pumping out warm, salty water. What would you rather drink? I'd rather drink a cold can of Coke out of the fridge <laughs> rather than warm, yeah. salty groundwater. Yeah. And then, then you've got the ramifications of the health benefits, you know, the, the rotting teeth and the, the, the diabetes and, you know, the high sugar diet. <laughs> it's interesting yeah. stitching these lines of thinking together about this well-being, but also what you alluded to before, mm. Brad, about the major irrigators and the huge quantities of water that are stitched up in big business because the conversation we did have yeah. was around highest value yeah. use. Well, shouldn't the well-being and the health of communities be the highest value use. The allocations of our available resources really need to focus on the health and well-being of communities before the interests of big business and irrigators. And, you know, my personal take on this would be it's, it's the well-being of the people, but mm. what goes with that is the country and the environmental. And then what you've got left is, is what you can work into business opportunities but that's it doesn't seem that we seem to have that inverted yeah definitely and i think it it all links back to you know it's a basic human right to have access to clean water mm. that, that's a basic human right and then you look at the basin plan and it talks about critical human need as a priority mm. but you know when then you look at water plans in say new south wales and but you know, they amended a water sharing plan to allow to pump low flows. That's the water to keep the river alive. But they allowed their constituents, you know, the ones that lobby hard and commit to their industry partners and, you know, they obviously donate and all that sort of stuff, but they have some serious power when they can actually change a water instrument to actually pump low flows like that. That's the stuff that, you know, that's why we saw that contributed to part of the, those massive fish kills in the in the lower Darling Barker, you know, that there was no water left for the river. I think mm. you've really hit the nail on the head there with your allusion to power. The issue here that we need to really call out and examine is the challenges that are experienced when you advocate for change mm. or call this out because yeah. you challenge power constructs in the interest of better public and environmental outcomes. It can get pretty nasty. How yeah. do we address that? For the water space... What we need is another big drought. You know, that's the sad fact <laughs> of the matter. It is sad, isn't it, that only water. it has to be a crisis yeah, for us to focus. Yeah. yeah. It, it, it's a great point, Marnie, that you raise. And I'm wondering, to rattle the cage a bit, from the community perspective, uh, policymakers and that generally have an agenda to support the government of the day around stuff. And, and it's hard for them to lift their eyes uh, and bring back to what the community expectations yeah. are. Yeah. Now, Australia is a, a signatory to the United Nations Sustainability Goals, Brad, as you would 
well and truly aware. And the, the couple of the key, the big ticket items there is no piety. You know, water, uh, water security and availability has a, has a strong link to that. One of those goals I'm thinking of for me is life below water. The flows into the into the oceans around uh, water quality affect that. One of the STG goals is around clean water and sanitation. Mm-hmm. And Australia, at the federal level, are signatories to these concepts or these these agreements. And they seem to get parked from a governance perspective or an oversight perspective in the broader conversation about how it all links in with the challenges around over-allocation in, in, in the Murray-Darling Basin mm-hmm. and whether or not traditional owners are, are, can actually influence change there and the broader public. The people that are most affected by poverty in the world are the half a billion Indigenous peoples around the mm-hmm. world and all of them, I suggest, are faced with some sort of water crisis mm-hmm. and I'm wondering how we actually amplify. Do you have any insight you can share around that? There is some real challenges and some wake-up calls for governments, but yeah, you're right, you know, that, that public servants will cater for their, their policies and, and push their, their ideas and, and obviously make the changes to, to benefit whoever the government wants to benefit. So things like, you know, when we saw the, you know, the recent climate change, AP for climate change say that, Indigenous people produce the least amount of impact for climate change, but are the most affected again. Mm, and, mm. you know, that's going to affect their water as well. You know, you look at Torres Strait, they are the guinea pig and the, you know, the lab rat for climate change. You know, they've got salt water lapping at their front doors. Government laughed about that, about the Pacific nations back in the day. And they've got salt water intrusion into their freshwater lenses. Mm. So they're, they're going to have huge impacts on their water, you know, freshwater and, and obviously sanitation, about access and availability to them as, as the climate changes and, you know, sea levels start to rise more and more. So that's one aspect. But in the water space, you know, we only have the National Water Initiative. It's being refreshed at the moment. And, you know, if we can influence that, but really it has to be the states that are, are the governance aspect of water. Feds might have a bit of an overarching with their Water Act and the Murray-Darling Basin Plan, but states will do what they, they want to do and, and benefit their own. The only way we can impact governments is obviously whether that's legal challenges. You look at the recent legal challenges that have, have been exhausted for the Bylong coal. But, you know, it's a community that fought hard to stop a, a huge coal mine and that it had to do it through the courts. You know, mm. native title, that's, that's, not gonna, that's not a way to actually get water. Native title, we have no veto. There's no veto for Aboriginal people to say no. So we've delved into some pretty heavy topics here, but I'm conscious our time is is coming to an end. So we like to finish up with our favourite question, Brad, which is um, what's your favourite water song and why? I like Queens of Stone Age, Go With The Flow. Mm. It's, not a, it's not a water song, but the similarity to the, to the meaning of, you know, I go with the flow to make a difference. Nice. And obviously yeah. sometimes I swim against that flow as well <laughs> to, to try and, you know, have impact. And the other one would be hunters and collectors when the river runs Yeah, dry. the classic. So, yeah. You know, the... That has a big, yeah, the <laughs> yeah. classic. In the Australian context, it's it's all about, you know, our, our inlanders that, you know, a lot of them are ephemeral, but, you know, when they run dry, cities run out of water. Yeah. yeah people run out of water access and you know, when the when there's water in the rivers, people are happy and healthier. 
Yeah, you've yeah. nailed it. Thank you yeah, so it, much, it, Bradley it, Modridge, for your time. It's been absolutely wonderful speaking with you. I'll close out, Brad. I thought I was the only person in the country over 60 that listened to the Queen of the Spain. <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> I love this bit because I now I get go go online and, and, go, and you know, get on, <laughs> start, oh, I'd forgotten that. Yeah, yeah, that's a great song. <laughs> Yeah. Eagles of Death Metal. All right, yeah, hey, yeah. I saw, I've seen them live a couple of times, yeah. Brad, and yeah. I know that this is not a music show, and uh, <laughs> they are one of my favourite bands to see live. You get the feeling that Brad Mogridge has been a fish swimming upstream, but then maybe he's more the calm, patient fisherman, for no one can catch a fish in anger. Speaking of fishing, you might feel like dropping in a line or two after listening to our next conversation. Nance Haxton had the delightful opportunity to board Vinnie's Tinny and cruise out of Cairns Harbour to Manding Galbraith Udinji country with the Executive Director of the Junbunji Land and Sea Program, Dale Mundraby. My name's Dale, this is our beautiful skipper, Liz. Hello. For Mandingalbe Udinji Executive Director Dale Mundraby, taking visitors to his country on their new boat is a joy and a privilege. It's also the culmination of years of hard work, firstly to bring his country back to good health after years of degradation, and now showing guests where the salty water of the sea meets the fresh water flowing from the surrounding mountains. So I acknowledge the countrymen that we are standing on here today. That's the Gimoy Wallabala Yudinji. Yudinji is a big nation. We're a part of that. We're the Mandingalpa Yudinji. What identifies us as landmarks, having a connection to country through song, dance, law and custom. What is unique through marriage, we still maintain the connection and the dialect we speak is Yiddi and that still is carried on today. So I welcome you to uh, our experience. As Dale explains, their Junbunji Land and Sea Program is wholly owned by Indigenous people using traditional practices to rejuvenate and nourish the land and run the ranger program, continuing their connection to country going back many generations. This is a East Trinity Reserve. It's a wetland, some 900 hectares of country. It's the size of the CBD of Cairns. So everyone's got an idea for it, a second city, a second airport, a gun range. We'd like the country to get, to get back, back into its natural habitat. Prior to that, it uh, is 1970s, they tried to grow sugarcane in there. 700 uh, hectares of salt, mush and mangroves were cleared. And what happened in the 1970s, there was a big flood, 150 a year. So 8.6 metres fell that year. After the water dissipated, the minerals from the soil came to the surface, reacted with the oxygen, and that caused a bit of bacteria, called that acid sulfate. So it's Mars red. It's the equivalent, uh, the pH level was equivalent to battery acid times 10. So nothing survived. And like anything, we had to rehabilitate the area, and we do that today with scientists and in the government and non-government non uh, agencies. So there's like Birdwatch Australia, the acid sulphate people, the soil people, the mangrove people, and it's great. So we can put science and culture together to help manage all the different various ecosystems. 
Dale Mundraby says his people have been part of this land for many thousands of years and are now eager to show it to others who come to visit and take part in their ancient Indigenous tours, introducing them to their bush pharmacy of food and medicinal plants in the surrounding rainforest. So uh, there's gates and there's a water monitoring station that measures the pH level in the different seasons, flooding, so the gates need to be lifted higher or lower and we'll be advised of that and it'll the tidal flow or the catchment flow to flow at an appropriate rate so the acid sulphate is still being diffused and the way in which it's been re rehabilitated is purely through the mangroves. So one mangrove species I know off the top of my head is the yellow mango, mangrove tree. Because the leaves turn to yellow, sucks the toxins out of the water, they break down, degradable, and that cycle continues and what that results in is pure, fresh, clean, purified water going to our reef. So um, that 700 hectares was for a couple of decades would have affected the water quality out to the reef, but we're improving that. Their Indigenous Ranger program has 10 full-time Indigenous employee rangers doing resource management on country as well as conducting research and greatly reducing marine debris and rubbish that was damaging the fragile environment. We're guaranteed to pick up kilos and kilos of rubbish every single time we go down to a particular place I've named Ball Pocket and East Trinity Reserve. So all the floating bottles and plastics and the neighbours' balls might be tennis balls, basketballs, <laughs> cricket balls, softballs, you name it, ping pong balls, they all end up in this one pocket on a high tide. So for collection it's easy in the sense that it's one spot but then the, the kilos add up and what that is is 99% urban runoff from, from cans. So it's basic, when I say basically, the, the ongoing issue is when the rain falls again, the beautiful rain, it catches all those floating uh, objects and down our drains and into our waterways and straight over to East Trinity Reserve. Uh, what, what that's done for us is identify what types of uh, fl floating things are out there and where they come from. So when we go further south on our country, on the south of Yarraba, we, we have foreign runoff of debris rather than domestic. So again, that's telling us with those currents that flow past their country where those things have come from and we've actually even found yes nancy a letter <laughs> and a bottle really <laughs> yeah not just a song <laughs> and our, our female ranger larissa found that and we opened up and read it and it was from some 40 years ago of a sailor wanting to make contact as a friend so i think it's like the old pen pal oh, that wow. they have in days. and um <laughs> So she wrote a letter, put it back in the bottle, and hopefully it'll get it in another 40 years' time. <laughs> the, the, the plastics is, is um, yeah, highly an issue for all of us here. And um, working together, again, with industry, partners, neighbours, ranger groups, the community of Yarraba. Uh, we have a lot of school groups come out and participate. Well, and we benefit from finally listening more to our traditional First Nations owners, don't we? Because you've got that holistic view. It's not just looking after the waterways in your patch. It's, and as you said, the flows, when they improve, actually improve the Great Barrier Reef. It's all that integrated view. Everything's connected to each other in some shape or form or some season throughout the year, maybe wet or dry. And again, what is added to that is industry that surrounds our waterways. So 
best practices I believe and I've seen myself has been improved through cane farmers, banana farmers and, and, the, and the way they manage their, their crops today is, has improved and will continue to improve and it's for the simple fact they care about the, the country the same as us so we're all having this wonderful conversation together rather than an argument about who's doing what and it's more of a conversation about how can we do things together to improve. That's really exciting that you've been able to forge those ties with surrounding agriculture and everything as well. Yep, yep. Uh, it's, uh, we all definitely need the agriculture around us to, um, to provide those food and sustenance and the better we can support our neighbours and what we do through the Ranger program both helps us and, and helps them in, in their management of country. So uh, culturally, how do you know when you look around that the land is healthy? What can you tell us about that? cultural connection to the water around us here on Mundungalpe, Yindinji country. Through the ranger program there's data collection and as you know locals we observe what's going on around us and so you may see a certain weed and a ranger would remove that weed by spraying, burning or physical labour pulling it out, nothing like pulling out a weed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in, in return, the native species of grasses come back and we see that and that may flower and it's like, well, that's new. We haven't seen that for some time or ever. And we've got a, a, a white bush rose that popped up here the other week, Nancy, and I asked the rangers, that's a weed, we need to get rid of that. And they advised me politely and said, no, <laughs> that's, that's a native bush rose. And I said, oh, that's great. I've never seen one before. Oh, how exciting. Fascinating. Mm. And, and likewise, when the native grasses come back, so too the native species, so the animals, and where you may not see a cassowary in the lowlands because they stay up high away from disturbances, will we'll venture out and about. And to us, that's acknowledging that country is healing itself. And by observing that healing, we can ensure that it's, heal- it's being healed in the right way. And we do have a lot of crocodile, turtle, dugon strandings and and that's purely due to human activity, contact, so boat strikes, fishing, netting, and what we can do again is have that conversation with the community and be aware of what's out there and we do that together. Uh, just again a- acknowledging the, the situation that we're in here is everyone's being really cooperative and collaborative and without getting too negative Nancy, 10 years ago you wouldn't have the conversation. Mm-hmm. We're all walking around with our heads down, doing our own thing. Today we walk around with our heads up, looking around and observing together. And and I say that comment from visit when you last <laughs> visited with your son. He, he uh, didn't walk around with his head down, he walked around with his head up and I interrupted and said, oh, what is he doing? And then we asked him and he pointed way up high in the treetops and we saw a, a big uh, two-foot goanna rest sunbaking up in a tree. And, you know, for, for a little young fella, he's, his life, what I've observed, is all about looking at, looking out for what's out there rather than looking down for what's in front of you. And, and, and again, just that, those types of visitors coming here and having experience, we, they don't only learn from us, we learn from them. Might be young, old, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, friends and uh, visitors from far and wide. Oh, it's it's an exciting time. Like you say, it's only 10 years. It's not long, is it? Really, <laughs> truly. Well, you know, I to see that change. 
this year is the 10 years of our Indigenous protected area. We're number 50 in Australia that we dedicated our country to being an Indigenous protected area. It's a non-legal bonding agreement. It covers freehold, national parks, state forests, science reserves. So it's, a, again, a way of looking at country together holistically rather than having lines and um, restricted areas on our country. And our Indigenous protected area is also the first of its kind over that multi-tenure I mentioned. So it goes over water also. Mm. And again, the, it's once again, it's an enabler to attract partnership and conversations to look after country. Yeah, can you tell us more about that, the significance <laughs> of having the water? That was really big from what you've described there. Oh yeah, so when we look at country, we don't segregate it as in land, water, air, <laughs> plant, animal. We look at country as all one and the same. So if one part of the country is not operating or, or playing, it, it certainly affects another part of the country. And again, through that observation, eyes open, looking up, we'll, we're able to identify what are the issues affecting that and working together with community, landowners, stakeholders on how we can work together to uh, improve the situation. Has your data shown that the water quality has improved? Absolutely. It's regulated through monitoring stations down in East Trinity. So the pH level is recorded and, and sent to Brisbane automatically. Then in return we'll get an email saying what the pH level. That'll indicate if we need to lift the gates higher or lower. But in regards to the, the water quality itself, certainly with the rain levels, it gets affected, Nancy. And some of those things are due to blockage of trains. Mm -hmm. So just last fortnight we had a situation where we had a, about 80 fish kills, a, a dieback, mm -hmm. and that was resulted in low oxygen in the water. And, and as the rangers backtracked to where the water intake was, one of the pipe drains was blocked. So simply taking the log and unblocking that pipe would allow that clean water catchment tidal flow and that's rectified now and the, so there's fish still swimming around and but again through that observation of what the plants and animals are doing is a big indicator of what's going on. Beautiful, appreciate it Dale. Is there anything else you'd like to add for our Making Waves people listening? Uh, I think I think it's, it's, a, it's, it's a great little chat, Making Waves with Waters. It's like the old pebble hitting the pond it creates the waves or the ripple effect and that ripple effect touches everyone as it does in the waterways, Nancy. Thank you, Dale. Well, Nance certainly strutted her former ABC stuff there. Maybe Dale Mundrabee and the Jabunji Rangers should have added a note to the message in the bottle. Stop littering! Will our future water managers be more aware of how actions upstream in the catchments impact receiving waters? I wonder. Hello, what's your name and how old are you? Rosie and I'm um, six. Six. <laughs> You're six, are you? Rosie, why is water important? Because you drink it. What happens when you turn your tap on at home? It goes out. Where's the water that's coming out of the tap come from? The sea. How does it get to your house from the sea? Hmm, I don't know. From a tap? <laughs> Could be. What happens when you flush the toilet? Where does the water and the waste go? Down a pipe. And where does the pipe take it? To the sea. Oh dear. 
going on there? <laughs> that was Rosie with her Dalesford Dharma School cheer squad, including Nance and I. We extend our sincere gratitude to the Water Services Association of Australia and the nine water authorities who gave the support and creative licence for this podcast. Thank you City West Water, Hunter Water, Icon Water, SA Water, Sydney Water, Taz Water, Unity Water, Water Corp and Yarra Valley Water. Thanks also to ex-UK pop star James Henderson for our beautiful theme music and thank you so much for our awesome producer and special guest interviewer, Nance Haxton. We hope this has whet your appetite. Troy and I look forward to chatting with you in the next episode of Making Waves. Series one of the Making Waves podcast was created over a two-year period spanning mid-2020 to mid-2022. The views and perspectives presented are those of the individuals speaking. They do not necessarily represent the views of the organisations associated with individuals or the funders and supporters.